This is the Victory Podcast. Every week, we'll share an inspiring message about God's grace and forgiveness for you, wherever you're at in life. Your victory starts now. Let us go to our Heavenly Father in prayer, asking for His blessing as we gather around His Word. Our gracious Father, we come to you confidently in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that much of what we're going to be reading and talking about from your Word today isn't pleasant, it's not pretty, but we know there's value here because we live in a world that is filled with dangers. We're often part of the problem rather than the solution, and we confess that. But send us your Holy Spirit. Work in our hearts as well as our heads. Change our wills. Replace our value systems. And give us life that is truly life and joy that exceeds every other kind of pleasure imaginable, centered in your saving work through Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we are praying, amen. My dear siblings in the Lord Jesus Christ, <clears throat> we continue with the sermon series regarding David, the imperfect king, and uh, we're going to be focusing to a large degree on his imperfect, often dysfunctional, and often very, very badly behaving family. We're going to begin our focus in 2 Samuel chapter 15, which is the opening part of the information about his son Absalom's rebellion against him to take over the kingdom of Israel, that is the southern kingdom of Judah at this time. It didn't just start here where we're gonna start this reading. You see, there was another son, another part of this family, Amnon was his name, and he raped and he disgraced and then he abandoned a half-sister named Tamar. But Tamar was a full sister to Absalom and of course, as soon as that happened, Absalom began to plot and ultimately carried it out, a murder. He murdered his brother, Amnon. He went into voluntary exile. He came back to Jerusalem ultimately. And this is how he behaved himself with deception and evil intent once he got back into the city of Jerusalem. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, what town are you from? He would answer, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your claims are valid and proper. Ah, but there's no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case would come to me and I would see that they receive justice. 
Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. While your servant was living at Geshur in Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. The king said to him, go in peace. So he went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They had been invited as guests and went quite innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor, to come from Gilo, his hometown. And so this conspiracy gained strength, and Absalom's follow, following kept on increasing. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all of his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. I wonder how many of you have read the book by Victor Hugo, Les Miserables. Yeah, Les Mis. Because it's just a few pages shy of 1,500 pages long, you're probably more familiar with it because of the stage play or the movie. But readers of the book often remember one section because it caught them by surprise. In the middle of that book, there is a 15 to 20 page detailed history and description of the sewer system of the city of Paris. It ain't pretty. It kind of stinks. But there is value in reading those pages because later on as the plot develops, the sewer system of Paris plays a significant role. Well, this morning, it is our opportunity to take a look at the often dysfunctional, all too frequent immoral, everybody look like they're in a race to break the most commandments of God the quickest way, family of David. It's kind of like a sewer system of any large city. It's not pretty. And ethically and morally, it stinks. It's not funny. But it's here because there's value in us learning from this.
because we also live in a sinful world. We also are assaulted daily by Satan. We also have our sinful nature to betray us any opportunity it can. When we began this study of King David, the imperfect king, in the very first week, we were introduced to a profound and beautiful statement by the Lord. The Lord had said to Samuel, when Samuel wasn't sure which of the uh, sons of Jesse he should anoint the next king of Israel. And that's where the Lord, back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, said to him, people look at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart. Now we understand that. We know that we cannot read hearts. We cannot uh, verify motivations. And there's an awful lot. When we look at a person, we look at a family unit, we often just get a general impression. And even if we learn a little bit more, we may make broad assumptions. But you know, there's one thing that we often don't pick up on, and that is burdens. Crises, challenges, pain, disappointment. That's often hidden from the surface. But we've all got it. And I mean every one of us and every one of our families. Specifically as Christians, we especially have it. Remember what the Lord Jesus Christ said a number of times, but here we read from Luke chapter 9. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Every child of God, without exception, is going to be bearing a certain God-given cross, a burden, a difficulty or more than one. Now it could be a physical issue that no one else is all that aware of. It could be an emotional issue. It could be family. It could be extended family. It could be financial burdens. It could be social disruptions in the neighborhood or at work or at school. But there's going to be issues that are there. And that brings us again back to David's family also, and we want to learn from them. And we ask ourselves, how, uh, why did the, the man after the Lord's heart, King David, end up with such a stinky, uh, dysfunctional, uh, immoral, and uh, unrepentant family, at least to a large degree. And to learn from them, I want this to be a dominant question that we're asking of ourselves. When our lives as saints, as God's people, start to stink, then what? And the first thing I want you to consider based upon sacred scripture and the account of David's family is that we <clears throat> will reject the idea of false guilt. Now, but false guilt is, is manufactured guilt that goes against God's previous declaration that we're already, in God's eyes, saints. 
that because of the work of Jesus Christ, which is finished and unchangeable, irreversible, and because the Holy Spirit has brought us to trust him as our substitute, we nevertheless manufacture guilt and we nevertheless live our lives, well, maybe a little bit like Eeyore, just convinced that if something goes wrong, it's, I must have done something wrong. God is out to nail my skin to the high. I, I, he's out to get me. Yep, yep, he's playing some cosmic game of gotcha. And that's the issue that surfaces so very, very much. Many people believe that that was part of David's problem. The reason why in the sacred scriptures we're not told how that he disciplined, that he rebuked, that he made efforts to bring these godless children to repentance. They think that maybe it was this manufactured guilt that, that, that he was wrestling with. And there's reasons to think that way. Manufactured or false guilt is me-centered. It's all about me and my emotions and my perspective, even if the objective word of God says otherwise. And emotions are so often in control. Well, one of the evidences that many Bible students bring forth as to make this a possibility is when Absalom was killed. Absalom's rebellion was not a long drawn out <coughs> war. It ended pretty ugly and pretty quick when Absalom himself lost his life in the first major battle. And what do we read? Well, in <coughs> 2 Samuel chapter 18, when he got word of his son's death, the king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And that emotional outburst, that broken record refrain, it just continued hour after hour. Oh, it just, it, it wouldn't quit. So that we're told in the next chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 19, that when the victorious army that had defeated Absalom's rebels returned to David, David wouldn't say hi. David wouldn't thank them. David wouldn't greet them. David didn't have any particular word to say about the preservation of the southern kingdom of Judah. But rather, in 2 Samuel 19, the men stole into the city that day as men steal in who are ashamed when they flee from battle. The king covered his face and he cried aloud, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. We don't know for sure if David was suffering from false guilt. This, this king who was after the Lord's heart, <clears throat> characteristically and in general, he acknowledged his sins, he repented of sins, and he gravitated with great joy to the announcement of forgiveness because of the coming Messiah and the saving work that Messiah would accomplish. But here, maybe he had lost it at least for a while. And it's very sad. We know that the Lord did not want him to manufacture guilt. Last week, Pastor Bill fed us a beautiful diet of sin, but especially grace. Recall there, 
and it's going back now to what was read last week, 2 Samuel chapter 12, when David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. The message is clear. Forgiveness is real. It's genuine and it's objective. But I know me and through scripture, because there's no temptation that attacks us that is not common to all mankind, I know you. And so let me put it this way. Let me use an illustration from my own youth. I'm saying that we all have our red front door in Tucson. Now the backstory to this is that when I was in high school, Amphitheater High School, Tucson, Arizona, I think it was probably my sophomore year. Now we're talking over 60 years ago. Some friends of mine and we were driving around doing nothing particularly great. But one of the buddies in the car had an issue over against some girl also from Amphi High School. And so this great master plan was hatched. And <clears throat> after dark at night, we drove to this girl's home. And in the cover of darkness, we snuck up and we painted the front door of her parents' house bright red. And then we disappeared. I don't remember which friend had the issue with the girl. I don't remember who the girl was. And I couldn't tell you exactly in Tucson where the house is. But because I never confessed that sin to them, I never apologized to them. It stuck with me. I was part of a sinful activity. Now there have been many, many times that I have in my prayers continued to put this at the foot of the cross and praise God that he has forgiven me for that red door. And I've also prayed that the Lord would bless that family to keep them from hatred and, and, and thoughts of revenge and lift them up with greater joy. My point is though, that after all of these decades, I still remember that event. And that's the way that sin works. If you don't accompany it on a day-to-day -day basis with the objective, freely given grace of God in Jesus Christ, it'll get you. It's because we carry with us a sinful nature, which is unreformable. And it never apologizes for suggesting that sin is always the best way to go. And then you have Satan. In the book of Revelation, recall that he's called the accuser of our brothers. That is all siblings in Jesus. He is accusing us day and night. And he's never going to relent. And because of those influences, it's possible that we could create good. It could, it could, it could have been lies that we, we told people years ago. It could have been unfaithfulness in one way or another to a marriage partner. 
It could have been involvement in some way in an abortion. It could have been some spiritual crisis we went through, but in so doing, we set a horribly bad example for our children, possibly also grandchildren. It could have been so many things. Sky's the limit. But then we end up with sometimes this guilt. We could have cheated on our income tax in 1963, and we're still gonna remember that. And this is the problem. That's why, thanks be to God, we can open our Bibles to ah, sections like Romans chapter eight, at the very beginning of that chapter. There in Romans chapter eight, we read, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, that sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. You know, I have this hunch <laughs> that when the apostle Paul wrote, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I believe that he meant there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If God has graciously brought us to know who Jesus is, what he has accomplished, and how the Father has pronounced us not guilty because he took the guilt from us, that changes everything. And our relationship to him is no longer alienation, but reconciliation. And well, it's been put many ways. Here's one way that I read uh, because I knew we'd be talking a little bit about sewer systems and stinky atmospheres. If God saved you out of a sewer, don't dive back in and swim around. That would be inappropriate guilt, manufactured false guilt. That's quite a picture, isn't it? <laughs> Thoroughly distasteful. But how about a beautiful picture with the same concept of forgiveness? Let's go to the Old Testament prophet Micah, chapter seven. And there we are told, who is a God like you who forgives guilt? He does not hold onto his anger forever. He delights in showing mercy. You will throw all their sins into the depths of the sea. Oh, what a beautiful picture. They're gone. And then Christians since then, I don't know who first did it, but I love it, have often added a phrase. And it has often been said, he posted a no fishing sign there in the depths of the seas where he has cast our sin and guilt. So when things in our lives as saints start to stink. What then? Well, first of all, reject the idea of false guilt. And here's number two, receive the blessing 
of divine discipline. This discipline is sometimes called the disciplinary consequences of sin. It doesn't mean you're not forgiven. It doesn't mean that God is uh, not serious about separating you from your guilt as far as the east is from the west. Not at all. What it does emphasize is that it's always been with us and God is going to use it for good, salutary, healthful, helpful purposes. Adam and Eve were fully forgiven, but they were still banished from the Garden of Eden. Moses, when he had murdered that Egyptian slave master with God's permission and command, still had to leave Egypt. And Moses, when he in anger and a little bit of too much, it's all about me attitude, struck the rock rather than simply speaking to it as God had commanded him to gain water at Kadesh Barnea. Yeah, consequences of sin. It's like living too many years with drug and alcohol addictions. And you can be fully, completely forgiven. Praise God for that. But you may still have a lousy liver and struggling kidneys and other body parts that don't work perfectly anymore. Yeah, there's, there's consequences. There could be parental abdication, abdication of responsibility. There could be disharmony that could have been nipped in the bud. And you may end up then with intergenerational issues and sibling rivalries. Again, the consequences of sin, even if it's forgiven. And God is able to use these negative consequences for good purposes. And so we turn again to scripture here. In Proverbs chapter 3, it is stated initially, but it's repeated in the New Testament by the New Testament writer to the Hebrews in chapter 12 of his letter. Do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son or child. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. And that often has, well, is said to be a, a, a major player in the drama of the royal household of Judah. Uh, the, the sewer system in Jerusalem. And one of the reasons for that, of course, is based solidly on the words of the Lord himself. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, if you'll recall us again from last week, the prophet Nathan said, you, David, struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Our Heavenly Father is fully capable and has demonstrated it in a variety of ways. He can use sinful, unrepentant people. Yeah, like Amnon and uh, Absalom. And later on is going to be Adonijah 
another bad boy we're not even talking about yet. And he can use these people for his purposes. And he's going to discipline David and the godly portion of David's royal family in wisdom. So the large dysfunction, you know, David catches it from a lot of people. Worst parent in the world, absolutely. But it could have been he understood divine discipline. He may have privately rebuked. He may have spoken very clearly to them with both the message of law and gospel or the, the sin and the seriousness of it and the grace of God that he wanted them to turn to. He may have, it's, scripture doesn't say, it's just silent. But the one possibility is that the David was saying every day, again and again, I am so grateful for the forgiveness of sins for my horrible, public, internationally known sins, and I bow to the Lord's wisdom when he gives discipline. Discipline to the family, discipline to bring honor back to his name and reputation internationally, all of that. And so we again go back to the truth, and it's worth stating a second time from Hebrews chapter 12. Do not make light of the Lord's discipline, do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone that he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. Yeah. One more time. Let's go back to that question. When our lives as saints start to stink, then what? Well, yeah, we reject the idea of false guilt. We do not lose heart, but receive the blessing of divine discipline. But especially, let us rejoice in God's unconditional grace. I've already mentioned Adonijah, Amnon, Absalom, Huge thumbs down. But then there was Solomon too. Yeah, not exactly the perfect king. Started out well, kind of fell off the cliff. But go to the New Testament, brothers and sisters. Go to Matthew chapter 1. Solomon right there. His name is part of the genealogy of the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth. There you have, again, from the descendants of Solomon, led directly to Joseph of Nazareth. Not biological, but the legal and the social father of Jesus Christ, according to their society and culture. Oh, there's another name, Nathan. But here I'm not talking about the prophet Nathan. We're talking about another son of David, a part of that family, Nathan. He also pops up beautifully in the New Testament in Luke chapter 3. Again, another genealogy of Jesus of Nazareth. But this is the one that goes from Nathan all the way to the biological mother of Jesus of Nazareth, namely 
the Virgin Mary. Do you see what this is? It's an illustration right in front of us that, well, of what the Apostle Paul wrote in, in Romans chapter 5, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. You've got the dysfunctional, ugly sewer system part of the family, but you also have already the Lord actively at work building the family lines leading to the son of David, Jesus Christ. And that is what we want to keep our focus on. Never, never let us grow weary of learning more and more about the Lord Jesus Christ, his birth, his life, his active obedience, his, 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 the ugliness of the life that he lived, again, because he was despised and rejected by men. And that God-forsaken death, because all of your guilt and my guilt and everybody else around us, that guilt was dumped onto him and dealt with. What's the old saying? Cash on the barrel head. It was paid for in full. Yes. Oh, now when you walked in here, and, and when you leave this sanctuary, you're going to say, I knew that. I already knew that. On a true false test, bing, bing, 100%. Got it. Brothers and sisters, that the Holy Spirit might allow these truths to feed our hearts and our wills and not just the head and the brain and the memory system. Let us day by day ponder let us wrap ourselves in the word that the Holy Spirit might work the miracle of incorporated into our very deepest being. And that will lift us up above false guilt. It will see that we don't lose heart when our dear loving Father in heaven disciplines us. It will give us a beautiful new perspective on everything, renewed on a daily basis. One more Bible passage. If we turn our attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we have the picture, thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. Indeed, aspects of our lives and our families may stink, but the fragrance that comes through Jesus Christ and the victory that we have in him and the procession that we are a part of that we may rejoice in and share with others the centrality of our substitute and sin bearer, Jesus. Ah, oh, <laughs> it's always about Jesus, the ultimate son of David. Let us pray. Our gracious Father, we thank and praise you for the grace that you give that always increases all the more when sin increases. And we ask that you use the word that we hear today and tomorrow and the day after that as the vehicle of the Holy Spirit to empower us and to make us new and fresh and wonderful. Again, not for our own reputation's sake, but as your instruments in this world.
and the agents of change also for our family units and for those around us. Bless us, our dear Lord, that we may be blessings to others. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Victory Podcast, brought to you by Victory of the Lamb in Franklin, Wisconsin. For video sermon archives, more information about us, and to let us know how we can meet you where you're at, go to victoryofthelamb.com.